our other pastor, Tim, he actually picks the sermon series and titles and uh, scriptures. And he picked for me this sermon. And, you know, Tim and I were roommates in college, and he doesn't like me very much. And I know it because this is, I think, my least favorite passage of scripture all time. Seriously, this is the least. And we're going to read it, so I'm going to ask you to read it with me. But as you read it, just know that this is something I just, I, I know it's true. It's God's word. I'm not trying to get you to believe anything less than what it is. And it's even, wor- these are words that Jesus actually speaks. If you have one of those Bibles that has red letters in it, these are red, okay? So, you know, you can't hardly deny them, but yet it just grates at your soul. And you're going to know what I mean as we read it. This is Luke chapter 16. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. It'll be on the wall behind me as well. It says this, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man. This is a story that Jesus is telling, right? He always does this. He kind of breaks into storytelling mode and makes his point through stories. And those points get made in weird ways. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So this guy is embezzling funds, right? That's what we call it in the 21st century. We can all agree on that. All right, he's an embezzler. Jesus is now telling us a story about somebody who's stealing from his employer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. You just got to go, huh? at this point, right? I mean, think about this for a second. Here's a guy who's stealing money from his employer. He would be arrested and put in jail in our day for that if he got caught and they they could prove it. And then now he is um, not strong enough to, who's not strong enough to dig? He doesn't want to work, right? Doesn't it feel like this guy's lazy? So on top of being somebody who's a a cheat, a liar, a, a, a thief, he's actually somebody who is lazy. And then he goes on to say, and I am ashamed to beg, and he's proud. He's too proud to do the work on one end. He's too proud maybe on the other end, although he says maybe lazy would be another word. And then he's cheating. How many of you employ people or have in your life employed somebody else? How many of you want to hire this guy? Not so much, right? This is about as bad as it gets. This is a guy you don't want in your shop or your workplace, your cubicle, wherever you work. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the guy says, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill down and write quickly, 50 oil uh, measures of oil then he said to another and how much do you owe and he said a hundred measures of wheat he said to him take your bill and write 80 what is the master going to say about this don't read you're cheating i see you you're you're thinking ahead what's the master going to say about this this guy who's embezzling funds who's too lazy to dig a hole and too i guess just too a lot of things to work right he's too proud to beg he's too a lot of stuff And now he's going to say this line, um, I'm going to cheat my master more money. I'm going to steal more stuff by making sure that the people who owe him money are now my friends because I'm going to limit their debts and take them and and make them lesser. What's What's this business owner going to say? Well, Jesus says this. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I don't like this story. Do you? It doesn't make any sense. That's, it's, it's annoying to see somebody who is always about truth, always about honesty. By the way, junior church kids can head out. I didn't quite say that at any point. But if junior church kids want to head out, you guys are ready. But the, what's that? Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. So at the end of this whole thing, Jesus is upholding this guy as somebody who does it better than other people. In fact, he's saying people inside the kingdom of God maybe do this one thing less well than what this guy does. He's using what he has. At the very end, he's kind of hanging from a cliff and he knows he's going to fiscally fall apart and his fingernails are gripping that whole thing. And he says, listen, this guy knows how to use what he's got as opposed to so many people in the body of Christ who don't. So many people in church who don't know how to take what they have and make the most of it. We're in this series called uh, Freedom or Free, and we're talking about things that kind of enslave our lives and help us to be in bondage and keep us. And this past week, we saw this kind of graphic, and Tim walked you through that and said, listen, we are people who need to find our identity in God. And when we do, we find that we are children of God, and we're given this grace, and it's amazing. Harini, if you want to go, you can. When you don't release the kids all at once, it's my own fault, right? I mean, this is, I just, I deserve what I'm getting up here. The identity comes from grace, and the grace comes from God, and the grace has to do with Jesus offering us this gift, and it's this amazing. Who we are comes from the very center of what God has done in our life, and that builds legitimacy, and then the part of us that usually is the place where we look to tell us who we are is the significance level, right? Whenever we come up to somebody, what do you ask? What do you, what do you do? What do you, what do you do for a living? And that's because most of us think of ourselves in terms of what we do. I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm a mechanic. I'm a pastor. I'm a this. I'm a that. And that's that outer rim, right? The significance level. Nothing wrong with that level. It's an important level in our lives. But it's supposed to be that the, the, the identity flows from the inside. What God's doing is at the center core, and he's building to the outside, and he transforms the outside of our lives by transforming the inner First, and most of us look from the outside in. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're talking about the meaningful life. So let me just change that word significance to this word meaning and and say that what God wants to do in our life is change that outer layer as well. Okay, so if you're here and you heard all of those things about God wanting to set us free on the inside, that's all true. But there's a question of what happens when we're set free, right? Because when we're set free from the things that hold us enslaved, the fears and the pride and the, and the brokenness inside of us, when we get that stuff kind of wrong, well, then, you know, the outside is going to be wrong. But when it gets set free, then the inside gets set free, and then the outside can slowly be set free as well. Let me share with you a quote. This is from a book that was kind of, it's kind of an it book right now. It's not a Christian book by any means. It's called The Fault in Our Stars. And uh, I quoted this once last year in a different sermon, but this is a really odd quote. Now, just a disclaimer. I spent a, a month in Holland when I was about 20 years of age, and we stayed in the red light district of Amsterdam. That's what you think of when you think of Amsterdam, right? And that's what this quote is about. And it's a, it's a quote about the city of Amsterdam and freedom. It says, are these houses very old? Asked my mom. Many of the canal houses date from the golden age, the 17th century, he said. Our city has a rich history, even though many tourists are only wanting to see the red light district. And he paused. Some th- tourists think Amsterdam is a city of sin. But in truth, it is a city of freedom. And in freedom, most people find sin. That's kind of something that makes you think for a second, right? 
When I asked one of the people this morning, I said, can I use this quote? It actually uses the red light district. You know, it's a little iffy. And they said, well, I don't know if they're going to get it. I don't know if anybody can. Under- and in freedom, most people find sin. So when God sets our identity free and we have this moment with Jesus and it kind of starts to transform our lives. Harini's in this room over here. Her mom's looking for her now. Um, when God starts to set our, our lives free, and then we find ourselves to be legitimate and we build this confidence in our lives, there's a real question about whether we spend the resources of our lives appropriately. We're all given a different amount of money, but frankly, we all have the same amount of time. And how we use that stuff on the outer rim of our life is very important. In fact, Jesus teaches on it very, very consistently. In this John or Luke 16 passage about, about the shrewd manager, the shrewd manager is actually this guy who uses that outer rim right when everything else in his life is going wrong. He's not been set free from his greed. He's cheating his master, right? He's not been set free from his pride. He's too proud to beg. He's not been set free from his laziness. He doesn't want to dig a hole. He's a guy who walks in a great deal of bondage. And yet Jesus says, listen, look at this guy because he's better than a lot of guys in church. Because a lot of guys in church don't know what to do with the outer rim of their lives. They don't know how to effectively think about what they do, even after God sets them free on the other inner parts of their lives. It's kind of a complete reversal from what we talked about last week. Let me go a little further and say that most of us think that we work for ourselves, right? What we do when we go to work in the morning is we kind of think of ourselves as people who need to get a paycheck. And what we're doing is we're going out there to make ends meet. And we're hoping that someday we work to this place where we can retire. And when we retire, we can say, well, we were actually a success. And depending on what what sort of house we live in, what sort of car we drive, what sort of ways we are able to spend our time, the parts of our world that we're allowed to travel to or able to travel to, we think of ourselves as people who are success or not. And we think of those things called our our, our jobs is the thing that kind of launched that whole thing. You know, I don't think that's the way the Bible looks at it. It's not the way Jesus looks at it. In fact, he calls us to a whole lot more. And the thing that will set you free from focusing on your own self and my own self, we'll look at within ourselves and saying, okay, how do we get what we want? How do we go after what we want? How do we become the people we want to be? How do we get to the, have the freedom with our time that we want to have so we can do what we want to do? The thing that will set us free from that faulty way of thinking and set us free to the God way of thinking is actually a thing called worship. This is from a sermon we preached months ago. And it just defines worship for us. It says the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. You know, most of the words in the Old Testament that are translated worship are actually fear words. Literally, the word fear in Hebrew is translated worship in English all the time. Tremble, another word that's translated worship. Bow down translated worship. The word worship doesn't have to do with a guitar and a piano and a bunch of singers. It actually, in the early parts of the Bible, has to do with people who get their heart in a place where they're afraid of God to the point where it changes their lives. What if we were afraid of God to the point where it changed the outer rim of our life and how we worked with our resources, spent our time, went after what God calls us to out here? What if worship was the thing that would provide freedom? What what if enslaving us and being afraid to God actually sets us free from all of the other fears that we're not going to be successful in all those other things? That's exactly what the scriptures teach. So in order to access that, I want to define two words for you. The first is this, vocation. What's What's a vocation? 
What do you think it means? This is the part where I tell you that you have to answer the questions I ask. It's a job, okay? What else? A calling? Well, literally, according to the dictionary, a strong feeling of suitability for a particular career or occupation. A person's employment or main occupation, especially regarded as as particularly worthy and requiring great dedication, or a trade or a profession. That's one word that describes how we spend our lives, right? A vocation. Let me give another word. This one, occupation. A job or a profession, and then down below the second definition, a way of spending time. There are, in this room, lots of occupations, right? Because occupations have to do with the way we spend our time. What occupies you? What occupies your focus? Think about this for a second. Just ponder. Because what is occupying your time is something that God wants to transform. Now let me just kind of alter your mind for a second and say this. That God differentiates between vocation and occupation. And all across the scriptures, there are people who have occupations, and there are important occupations. God never belittles those things. And they're not all big occupations. Many of them look like kind of normal, laboring sorts of occupations. And yet God will take those people, and he will say, listen, you're called to more. I want to make you somebody who is not just occupational. I want to make you vocational. Stephanie, you said it perfectly. It's not just about a job. It's about a calling. And I want to transform what you do in your life, says the Lord God, and make it something beyond what you think of as just kind of occupying your time. I went to work one Christmas vacation while I was in college for my uncle. My uncle has a construction company, and he employed just four or five guys. And I went to work on this team, and it was in the center part of Michigan in January. You know, Michigan and Jan- we were building a pole builder and putting steel up on this thing. You couldn't even wear gloves, and it was single digits. It was freezing. And, you know, the guys on our shift, they, they kept coming in later and later and later and later. And, you know, we were supposed to get there at 8, and it was almost, it was pretty dark at 8 o'clock in Michigan at that time of year. 8.01, 8.02, 8.03. You'd see people start to get in, and my uncle would just get madder and madder and madder. And he didn't say much. You could just kind of see him turning red. And day after day, I watched this. And then one day, he came in with a box. And he put this box on the front end of the um, backhoe, and he put it up there, and he said, here, I want you all. And he took a piece of paper out of the box, and he handed each one of us a box. He said, write your names down on it. I wrote Josh. You know, He says, I'm going to take that, and now I'm going to punch it in here. And it stamped it, and it said 803. He said, we are going to go to a manufacturing mindset where you absolutely have to get your clock stamped. You have, to, you have to prove you were here on time. And if you're here at 8.03, you're not getting paid till 8.15. If you're at 8.18, you're not getting paid till 8.30. And he made this whole big point, gave this whole thing right in a snowy barnyard. He had this whole thing lined up on a tractor. This is true. And he said, what occupies your time is important. And you're not giving me your time. And I'm angry about this, and I'm employing you, and I'm paying you for time you're not actually working. And he made this whole big deal about it. Well, whatever you think of your occupation, God wants to transform it into something more. Let me kind of walk through some people that might help you understand what I mean by this. These are people in the scriptures who God transformed from being occupational people to being transformed into vocational people. What is Abraham's occupation? Anybody read Genesis recently? What did Abraham spend his life doing? Come on, not all at once. 
He was a shepherd. How many of you think that being a shepherd in his day and age was a tremendous occupation that everybody respected? In Abraham's day, we know this historically, people had a phenomenal respect for people who lived in a city and lived in a home. And God called him to live in a tent. And that tent was going to move around wherever there was green pasture because his sheep needed to get to where that green was, wherever it was. And if you go to southern Israel today, there's not a lot of green. And he traveled around after green spot, after green spot, after green spot. He spent his life chasing goats. Why is Abraham a great man of faith? Why is he somebody that we pattern our life after? Why is he somebody who whole chapters of the Bible are written about, not just in the Old Testament, there's about 14 chapters in Genesis about him alone, but then there's a chapter in Romans and a chapter in Hebrews that talks about him as well. Why is this? Because this man lived a vocation beyond this. You know, wherever he went, he did something else. He actually built these piles of stones. And wherever those piles of stones were, he offered a sacrifice. And just like the song saying that the praise team was singing, he prayed and he asked God to change the land on which he was, he was building that altar. Do you know if you go back in Genesis today and read about those cities there, it's like a who's who list of what becomes the most important sites of Old Testament history. God does amazing stuff through each location where Abraham prays. So while he's following these sheep, and that's his occupation, God is saying, listen, let me tell you, you have a vocation, and the vocation is going to go a lot further than your occupation. You're going to be tempted to think that you're just kind of following sheep all your life, but let me tell you that where you pray, I will change people's lives. The history of the world was changed by the few places that man prayed across his lifetime. We'll come back to that in a little bit. David, what was David's occupation? He was a shepherd at first too, but then he went on to a second occupation. David actually has three occupations. He was a soldier, and he's a really good soldier. He was very, very effective as a military leader. And then he went on to his last occupation. What did he do as a, for a third occupation? He was a politician, right? He was the king. But what was David's vocation? He writes more psalms than anybody else in the history of the Old Testament. He writes poetry and transforms the art of praise and worship across the scope of the church and across the scope of the Old Testament. This man has more to do with how we praise God than anybody else in the history of the world. God used him to move beyond his occupation as first a shepherd and then as a warrior and then as the king of Israel. He used him beyond that occupation to vocationally change all of what we do. Rarely will you hear anything our praise team does in second service that some line from a psalm doesn't creep into their music. It's just always there. Most of us hear this stuff in our heads and we don't even know that it's David talking to us. Abraham's 4,000 years ago. David is 3,000 years ago. And these guys transform our existence today by their lives and by their vocations. In other words, when God chooses to bless our lives and help us to understand this stuff and we become part of his kingdom, he transforms us from people who think one way about work to thinking a whole different way. And frankly, our craftsmanship is very, very different when we have this transformation occur. If you're just somebody who shows up and pounds nails for a living, you're tempted to think, well, that's not that big a deal. If you're just somebody who shows up day after day after day and fills out the same forms or goes after the same phone calls or sells the same product to the same people, you're tempted to think those things aren't that important. I had this interesting conversation this past week. I was at that new coffee shop on the east end of High Street, Proximity Cafe. Have you seen that place? It's nice. It's a, it's a nice place. 
The manager came here to church a couple weeks ago. And, and we had this whole conversation. And they have one of the things they decided to do was have a resident artist. And her name's Anna Kai. She sings Monday, Wednesday, Friday at lunch. And she's a wonderful singer, really, really an, uh, just a beautiful musician. And she has this gift to, to bless people. And as it turns out, she's a believer. It's, we started having a conversation. She said, what's wrong with Pottstown? Wow. You know, and I was about to go to a meeting. This was Tuesday morning. This is where, where's Mel? This is why I was late Tuesday morning is because of this conversation. I was about to go to this meeting and she said, what's wrong with Pottstown? We had this whole conversation, a few of us, about what's wrong with Pottstown. Well, what is wrong with Pottstown? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. You know, you know what was built in Pottstown was the Golden Gate Bridge. The Golden Gate Bridge is art, right? I mean, it's beautiful. Today, people talk about it. It's like one of the wonders of our nation. You know what else is built there? Is a bunch of the bridges in New York City were built in Pottstown. The steel wasn't made there, but the, the, the bridges themselves were built on the south end of Pottstown. The Panama locks, the Panama Canal locks were built in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. There's a bunch of other things that were built in Pottstown, and they're beautiful things. And somehow in our minds in the middle of the 20th century, this thing happened where blue collar separated from white collar. And people who just riveted for a living were thought to be different. And they lived in a different part of town. And you can actually read about this in Pottstown. There's one ethnic group and one type of worker that lives in this neighborhood. And then you cross a line, and it's a different type of worker. And you can go all over Pottstown 65 years ago, and you can see where people lived and say this is what they did professionally. Their houses changed size depending on what they did. And there was kind of a class system, right? And what we did when we kind of came up with that mindset is we separated art from workmanship. And we stopped thinking that we were vocationally called, and we started to think we were just occupying time. And you know the story that those industries moved out of our city. And there's no more Bethlehem Steel, and there's no Firestone Tires, and there's no Dollar, and Dana went bankrupt, and there's endless lists of things that kind of went away. We had this conversation, and then we went further. I said, let me give you a different picture. I was in Nazareth two years ago. You know where Nazareth is, right? I don't mean the town north of Philadelphia. I mean Nazareth in northern Israel. We're in this town where Jesus actually probably grew up, and his stepdad was a, a carpenter. And there's not a lot of wood in Israel. It probably means more builder when they say that. And two miles from this town, Nazareth, is this other town. It's called Sepphoris. And today, Nazareth is really well inhabited. There's tens of thousands of people there. But in Sepphoris, there's nobody but tourists. But Sepphoris is beautiful. It's gorgeous. You go there, and the walls are all broken down. It's an uninhabited ghost town. But it was a Roman Greek city, and it was where the carpenters of Nazareth were working in the time when Jesus was growing up. Joseph probably walked two miles across this valley to do this work, and what he probably did was laid a bunch of stone. And you know, you can go there today, and what you see is these, the the main street is still there, and all of the blocks are still in place, and those blocks, they're laid with such craftsmanship that that there's there's ruts where where the carts went across them. But what there's not is any rock overturned. Those rocks are still there. What's more is you walk into a living room and you can, the, the walls are kind of broken down, but you walk into the living room and you'll see the mosaic tiles on the floor and they're beautiful. Little tiny tiles still sitting there 2,000 years later. You know, we have this picture of Joseph, right? He's a blue-collar worker and Jesus grew up in a blue-collar home and he kind of did. But never forget the thought that G- Joseph was an artist as well. You know what happens to our souls is we separate the art and the dignity of working 
from the craftsmanship that we're called to. And what we're a part of becomes an occupation and it loses the dignity of becoming what God called it to be, a vocation. Do you see the difference? This is huge. If you don't understand it, you're missing something very enormous because what God called Abraham to was following sheep. And then he said, while you go after the sheep, you do a good enough job at these sheep and you can pray as you do it. And then the world will be transformed. You, David, you can be a king and I'll call you to that. And you will think some parts of being a political leader. And by the way, David thought being a political leader was mundane and frustrating. You know, there's one moment when he decides it's boring to be a king. Do you know when this is? There's this great passage in 2 Samuel that says, in the spring of the year when the kings went out to war, David stayed home. You know what he was doing? He was tired of his job. The kings go out to war every spring, all of the war chieftains of the Middle East. And David should have been there. He was the best warrior of his age, and he stayed home. And what did David do when he stayed home? Did he stay indoors? No, he went up on his roof. And what did he do when he got up on his roof? He looked around, and what did he see? He saw this woman and she was taking a bath and his life spiraled for a while out of control. Why? Because he forgot his vocation. And he just started to occupy his life and say, I've retired. I don't need to have this mindset of being called anymore. I'm just kind of making life work. I'm, I'm punching a clock. That's David. Jesus does some interesting things. What was Jesus' occupation? He was a carpenter, okay. What's he more famous for? He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. And that's a well-known, that's a well-known occupation in the Middle East in his time. There's dozens of those teachers. They wander around, and they're kind of nomadic, and they're weird. And people thought weird thoughts about him and thought good thoughts about him, depending on what political party you were a part of. But Jesus was a rabbi, but then he went beyond being a rabbi, right? He started to hear the heart of a father God who wanted to heal people around him. And he started to realize that he was a conduit through which God could work. And he healed people's lives. That went further when he realized that God wanted to offer an ultimate healing. And then he traveled to this one mountain and he offered up his life for all of us because that was his vocation, right? Jesus had a vocation and it was saving the human race. Now, let me just stop for a second and tell you how this all links together. Because, you know, if you go back to the story of Abraham, he prays after city after city, and those cities all become some place. He builds altar after altar, piles of rocks that turn into cities that change the world. You know where the biggest prayer he ever prays is? He prays at this mountain called Moriah, and God tells him, listen, you need to pray this prayer that is different than every other prayer. You have one son, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And from this one son, I'm going to make you a great nation. But why don't we go see how much you love the son? Let's go sacrifice your son. And Abraham, in an era when people pursued and went through human sacrifice often, listened to God. It's crazy. And God never wanted that. But he travels to this mountain. It's a couple days' journey. And he goes to this place, and he almost sacrifices his son. And then says, God, or then God says, listen, you don't have to do that, right? And Isaac lives, and there's a ram in the, if you've read that story, it's in Genesis 22. There's a ram in the thicket, and he offers that as a sacrifice. And he dedicates this place to God. Where do you think that is today? The writer of Chronicles tells us that becomes a little town called Jerusalem. And when Jesus decides to follow his vocation, he travels to the exact same place and he offers himself in the same place that Isaac almost was sacrificed and he offers the most important sacrifice the world has ever seen. You start to see how this takes place, right? The vocation of Abraham transforms the world and offers a consecrational prayer in one location and that one place becomes a really unique place. 
In fact, it's such a unique place that today there is gunfire around that spot as people are fighting. It's the most fought over piece of real estate in the history of the world. And it's the most prayed over place for Abraham. And it's the place where he offered the most heartfelt prayer of his life. David reigns from that place and makes it the place from which he pursues his vocation. And he writes all these poems that we get to worship to today. Jesus goes to that place and he says, this is where I'm supposed to offer my body. And I'm going to transform the human race by offering myself as the punishment for their sin. And his vocation sets us free. I don't know what you think your occupation is to be. You may be a mechanic. You may be a carpenter. You may be this. You may be that. God is calling you to transform your workplace. God is calling you to see all work as something more than just an occupation. It's transformational work. It's a place where you can pursue a vocation. You may be somebody who prays differently at your work. You may be somebody who has conversations with those around you, and you're transforming the people around you by the very light in your eye because God has poured something into you. Whatever it is, there's people after people after people across the scriptures that tell us that vocation is a critical value of God's and that what we do with our time is not just something where we punch a clock and where we have a job or a task. It's something where we take what we are and we offer it to other people in a profound way. Sitting there in that coffee shop at the very end, Anakai said, so when I'm singing, is it possible that I'm offering this prayer to God that could transform our land again? And people who think of themselves as merely occupational could become people who see what they're doing as art. I thought, wouldn't that be beautiful? If we could start thinking of our jobs differently. This young person just saying, you know what, I want to pray into that. And she got all excited. She said, I'm going to pray into this. I'm going to go after God for Pottstown, that this becomes a place, again, where people can see what they do and realize that it has meaning. And the meaning is in worship to God. Meaning is to, to go after what God wants to do on this land. Meaning is within a strategy of a kingdom mindset. You know, there's this third line to the Lord's Prayer. You know, it begins, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, right? That means that sometimes God's kingdom is not here. And these are the people who are birthing the kingdom in their day. And when God is looking at somebody who has an occupation, what he's saying is, use that occupation to birth the kingdom of God in your time. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, do it as though you're doing it for the Lord. This is our calling. This is our gifting. One more thought. Revelation ends with the, the Bible, and it has seven churches that the the apostle john writes to and he says listen each one of these churches has a problem and whatever their problem is there's a word that has to do with how they're supposed to move past it it says you're to be an overcomer when you get involved in kingdom building when you get involved in vocational ministry you run into adversity how many people have had trouble at your job come on i've had my hand's still up and i work for you You know that, right? Like I actually, all of us have had trouble with our jobs. We've had vocational difficulty. We've had occupational difficulty. We've seen what we're doing. And when we press, sometimes when we press into what God wants to do in our workplace, we tend to find more trouble. We tend to find more difficulty. Why is that? Because we're called to be overcomers. And there's actually an enemy involved in this whole thing. And we're fighting a battle for the kingdom of God. You know, David It was interesting. He followed sheep for a while, but then he became a warrior. But then he kind of lays down the sword for the scepter, and he becomes the king. And you almost feel like he kind of lays that into the background as well because he realizes the most forceful, powerful thing he's ever going to do is write poetry. Worshiping God and staying connected to God is going to be the most important battle weapon you have wherever you're working. 
whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing in the way of child raising, whatever the way you're doing in, in befriending other people, whatever the, what you're doing in the way of being a neighbor to those around you, whatever you're called to, you're called to a vocation where you're supposed to overcome and you're supposed to seek God for the people around you. This is your call. And to think of yourself as less is to think that you're not to have the meaning in your life that you're intended to have. God has called you to this great gift. You're a gift to the world around you, and you're a gift to the kingdom of God. Let me move forward a little bit and talk just a little bit about this. We, each week, if you haven't been here, talk about a lie, some deception that's part of this whole thing. And the deception that we have is that we think what we do is only important if it benefits us. You ever feel that way? So we tend to think if we're able to retire based on what we're doing today, if we're able to get where we need to go by the end of our lives, then it's worth what we're doing. But that's not actually a vocational mindset at all. It's actually kind of selfish, right? What we need to do is go after God and worship and say, okay, God, what do you want to do through me today for these people around here? The thing that sets us free then is a whole nother truth. It's this one. It says freedom is found in doing what we do as an act of worship, looking at Jesus and saying, we do this for you. Not for us. We do this for you. And how would that transform the way we think about our vocations? How would it transform the way we think about parenting? How would it transform the things that we do in our daily life? I would see my actions as potential service to the kingdom of God. Everything we do has the possibility of doing great good for the world around us or harming it. You know, you never live a vocational life if you act unethically or sinfully. If there's anything in your life that shouldn't be there, if you bring any of that to your workplace or to your home life or wherever it is, whatever you're called to do, if you bring any of that, it stops being kingdom and it stops being vocation and you are now just punching a clock. It's almost like a night and day shift. You lose the plan of God the minute you break that plan in some small way. I would see my actions as potential service to the kingdom of God. I would be motivated by grace rather than comparisons with others. I worked on a farm growing up. And, you know, to be a farmer in our community was really something. People thought of you as very special. I I didn't know that the rest of the world thinks of farming a little differently than where I grew up. The farm I worked for had 3,000 acres of land and had a couple thousand head of cattle and had all this different stuff. And there was two farms in our whole town that were this big. One was a dairy farm. This one was a a vegetable farm and a cattle farm. And the dairy farmer drove up to the the farm I worked for one day, and he pulled up in a new semi-truck. I'll never forget this as long as I live. He pulled up in this new semi-truck, and he just pulled up to show off. And my boss of the farmers there said, how could they afford to buy that? That thing must have cost a half million dollars. And he was just furious and green with anger that those people across town, that other farm could afford a brand-new semi-tractor and trailer. It was that big a deal. We're talking about trucks, right? You know, whatever is in our soul as far as comparisons and competitiveness and pride, it does, you find it everywhere. You find it in a white-collar p- workplace. You find it at the giant grocery store. You find it on the streets of Pottstown. You find it in a farmer's backyard. It doesn't matter. Everywhere you go, you find this thing, and God wishes to set us free. I would be motivated by grace rather than comparisons with others because I'm not trying to do it better than the next guy. I'm trying to do it the best I can because I'm doing it as though God is watching because he is. That's a truth that sets us free, right? We become vocational people who are challenged to live lives with God watching and loving him with what we do. I would see setbacks as a normal part of serving God in a broken world. 
Did you notice that besides Jesus, everybody else on that list of people failed in a pretty big way, right? David with Bathsheba. Abraham had these really tragic stories where he lied about his wife and let other people marry her. Who does that? It's just sick. You know, the Bible is filled with people who go after God vocationally, and they mess up. And then they come back and God forgives them. The most amazing thing, you know, when you do that in a job today, you're kind of tempted to think, well, that person will never come back because they've fallen apart and they've really, they've blown it professionally. They're never coming back. Well, when there's grace and when the God of the universe has said, you're free in your identity and you're free in your legitimacy, I want to set you free in your meaning. When you fail, there's also the ability to come back. Confess and forgiveness is available. Abraham and David are still some of the greatest men in the history of our faith, and yet they are people who failed, frankly, in bigger ways than me. I've failed really bad, but I'm not afraid to tell you I've never killed somebody because I wanted their wife. That's what David does. Who does that? Murder. Because he wants the guy's wife. That's a really, really bad sin. If there's bad sin and good sin, well, there's not, right? There's just bad sin. But it's bad sin and good sin. I would see setbacks as a normal part of serving God in a broken world. I would understand myself to be on a team with others, not in a competition against them. When you're part of the kingdom of God and you're acting in worship, we're on the same team. And we're going after this job because God has called us to it, even if that job is mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or doing the things that we don't think of as necessarily absolutely amazing. This is stuff that God has called us to, and it's possibly worship for us, depending on our hearts and their level of transformation. So the challenge for this week is this. Set time aside to list your gifts and talents. Ask the Lord what he would have you do with your talents in his kingdom. Then pray asking for God's empowerment to accomplish your calling or your vocation, as I called it, by his grace. Finally envision what it would be like to do the things you do as worship, not merely as duties or requirements of life. I want to tell you a story, and we'll leave this up if you're writing the notes down. And this story goes this way. Um, And I I listened to this podcast from the West Coast, and I caught on to it there, and it's been all over the news, as it turns out. There's this bus driver. Um, She she was a, a welfare mom in San Francisco and couldn't afford you know, her life and had some difficulties, had a bunch of kids. And she amazingly got a job as a bus driver. And she went to this little church called Glad Tidings Pentecostal Church. And um, I heard about this because I listened to this Presbyterian podcast. And they were talking about the Pentecostal, which I found very endearing. The Presbyterians talking about the Pentecostals. It's just a blessing to see somebody care about the kingdom of God beyond their borders. And they were talking about this lady. And she's this amazing lady. She decided when she got this job that her calling was to bless every person who got on the bus with her. And she started to learn their names as the, you know, as that sliding door turned sideways. She would learn the people's names. And then she would put all of who she was. And you kind of get to meet her through this story. And you find out that all of who she was is somebody special. She, she, she put all of who she was into blessing the people who walked onto that bus. She got to know their names, and she started to pray for them and bless them and love them and care for them. And every day, she just became somebody who gave to the people on that bus. Who does this? I've ridden the buses all over Chicago. And I tell you, those bus drivers could care less. I don't know how many times. Last week, I saw somebody in Pottstown running behind a bus, and the bus driver looks in his mirror, and he can see the guy running in the rearview mirror, you know, and he just keeps going. Well, this lady decided she was going to keep track of the people and their timing, and she knew that if this guy was late, he would still be on the way. So she would wait, and the bus would actually wait at the bus stop for the people to make it to work, even if they, you know, were a little bit later that morning. There was such a connection that grew up in this bus. It became almost a community, and she became their pastor. 
it wasn't a real church. It was just the bus. But every day she was blessing them in the name of Jesus, blessing them. And if you heard her bless them, she was really blessing them. And these people got so attached to her that they actually decided, you know what? We have a, a summer house on the shore. You can come. Would you like to use our summer house? She was vacationing in their homes with her kids. She went from being a welfare mom to being a bus driver to being somebody who's so connected that she had this dozens of people who were blessed by her life. This Presbyterian church decided that they would call her in. It was really great to listen to on the podcast because the pastor is, you know, he's a good guy, but he's trying to keep it under wraps. You know, try, we try to keep control of our services, and he was trying to keep control of this lady, and she was dancing across the stage, just so excited. And she, he said at the end, he said at the end of this message, he said, listen, there's a bunch of people here. Could you turn this church into your bus and just bless us all? And she said, oh, in the name of Jesus, I will bless everybody. And she just started blessing and praying these great prayers. And you just thought, oh, my goodness, Presbyterians getting blessed like this. It would have been as strange at Parker Ford Church as it was there. This lady had it in her heart. She decided to turn her occupation into a vocation. She, tried, she went from being somebody who was receiving subsidized funding for all of what her life was about to being somebody who had a job that probably didn't pay that much money to being somebody who took that job and made something out of it that transformed a bunch of people's lives and blessed them. And it got to the point where it was such a big deal, it got written about in the newspaper, and everybody in San Francisco was reading about this lady, and she became kind of a thing, you know, a blessing, a blessed thing. What if our lives were so transformational and we were so on fire and so illuminated by what was happening inside? And instead of the shrewd manager doing the wrong thing on the inside and then using the last resort to bless other people, what if we just took all that freedom that God wants to birth in our life and we just said, okay, how much money can we give to these ministries that need it around us? How much time can we give to blessing other people? How do I spend enough time revving up my spirit with God and getting excited, listening to worship music, reading the word, getting so excited that wherever I go, people are bouncing off of me and getting energized for what God's doing, and they're feeling blessed. Even if they don't know Jesus, they're feeling blessed by the fact that I'm just in the room. Wouldn't that be exciting? God calls us to turn our occupations into vocations by worshiping him. And when we worship him, he says, I will work through you. And you don't know how far that blessing will go. I promise you when Abraham died, a hundred and some years old, he had no idea what would come from him. He knew that God wanted to bless all the nations of the earth. He didn't know it would look like Jesus dying on a cross to save us all from our sins thousands of years later. And yet that's where we are. Abraham gives birth to David. David gives birth to Jesus. Jesus gives birth to a whole church. That church becomes overcomers. That over, those overcomers go into the workplace all across this world and decide to leave, lead meaningful lives. And they transform places like bus routes in San Francisco. I don't know where you work. I don't know what God has called you to do. But I do know that he has called you to be a vocational minister of the gospel of Jesus. I do know that he's asked you to be something more than somebody who just punches a clock. And you're supposed to see your workplace and your environment and your context and your family and your neighborhood as a place where you can change the world and do life-altering work for Jesus. What you do is incredibly important. And I also know that you're deceived. If you're anything like me, you've been lied to and told these jobs aren't that important, that what you need to do is not that big a deal, that it's not just art, it's not art, it's, it's just kind of blue-collar, hammer the nail, get it done. Whatever your job is, is much, much more than just a job. God has called you to bigger. He has called you to better. He may have called you to bigger and better where you're sitting right now. It's not to leave the place where you are. It's to go where you're going 
in the location, but it's in your heart that you must travel to that deeper place of freedom, opening yourself to the Spirit of God and what He's excited about doing in your life. So in closing, I want to bless you. And the praise team is going to come and they're going to sing a song afterwards, but I'm going to bless you. And I'm, I can't do it like this lady in San Francisco. She was something special. You've got to hear this blessing. If you want to hear that podcast, by the way, I will get it to you. you I can email that out as part of this whole thing. It was that good. I, I've sent it to a bunch of my friends this week. And one, one person who listened to it, just the next time they saw me, they just hugged me and said, wow, that's the most amazing thing. I can't believe that happened. She said, you're really telling the truth. So God wants to work in your life. And if you want that podcast and kind of hear what I'm talking about, that'd be great. I'm going to bless you as well as I can right now that your workplace and your home life and your family can be blessed and you can see it as a place where you're supposed to do the work of being a meaningful follower of Jesus. Join me in prayer. God, we come before you and we just want to ask, Lord, for every person at Parker Ford Church, we have a hard time in this land getting excited. I just have a deep sense that we don't understand how good you are and how excited you are. You know, the scriptures tell us that when one person comes back and decides to follow Jesus, that the angels in heaven threw a party and they rejoiced. The scriptures tell us that when one person confesses sin, and it's like that one sheep that's lost from the other 99, that you go find them and you bring them back and you just love that sheep back into the fold. The scriptures tell us that you are a God who is meaningfully interested in the lives of all the people on this planet. And we easily kind of subtract ourselves from the equation wherever we're at and say, you know what, we're not going to be transformational. We're not going to be people who are all that energized or all that excited. We're going to be okay with a depressed lifestyle that says we're just good enough as we are instead of realizing that we are called to a vocation that is bigger. God, we ask that you would bless this church and each person in it with a deep sense of calling, Lord God. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would move in our hearts and in our lives and that you would not let up on us until we become people who have given from the very core of who we are to the edges of who we are and decide to live lives that are transformational for those around us. Help us to be people who forgive in the face of great pain and help us to be people who are absolutely convinced that your life and your power are available in this world today for the people and the needs around us and help us to be people who face those needs with love. Help us to not turn our hearts away from those who are broken. Help us to turn towards them and to find out what we can do. Even if it's just an energized, encouraged hello in the morning, God, help us to be people who bless and bring grace to every situation we're in. Don't let us be people who sits in the si- sit on the sidelines and wait for your kingdom to work through somebody else. Help us to be people who let you work in our lives here today. We are called to a vocation that is bigger, and we thank you, God, for that. It is a gift to know that you have decided to bless human life with dignity and with love and with a graceful understanding. You have called us to art, and we have forgotten it. You have called us to be creators, and we have forgotten it. You have called us to seek your blessing for others, and we have forgotten it. Forgive us and help us to walk according to your plan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.